Well, hey, welcome to the podcast. My name is James. I am so grateful that you're tuning in. And my hope is that you would be inspired and encouraged today as you hear this message. I want to remind you that you're changed not by the word that you hear, but by the word that you do. So lean forward with an expectant attitude. And I believe God is going to speak to you today through this message. All right. You guys go ahead and take your seats. Man, that sounds so like old school churchy. Y'all can take your seats now. Open up into your hymnals. We're going to be preaching. Forget all that. We're going to do something a little different today. So, oh, hey, guys. Appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks for that. Wasn't aware that that was going to happen. Hey, everybody, uh, good morning. It's good to be here with you today. Uh, I was in Cancun last week, so it was also good to be there last week. Uh, but it's good to be here today. I'm excited to be with you today. Obviously, I'm not Pastor James. Um, we are in this series, The Bible Uncensored, and I don't have a ton of time, uh, so I'm going to go right into it. First and foremost, uh, my name is Dave Scott, and I am one of the Kids Club presidents here at the rising alongside my lovely wife, Marisol, who's sitting in the front row with me today. Uh, And what that means is that, yeah, you can clap for her. She's way cooler than me, way cooler than me. What that means is that I get the awesome opportunity and the honor to hang out uh, and teach your kids about God and Jesus in an incredible way, a fun way, an engaging way, uh, and it's really honoring to uh, work back there and serve with them and just serve all the families that we have here at The Rising. So your kids are awesome. I love them. They're great. And also, I want to take just a second to brag on our kids team, uh, because if you guys have kids and they're in there or you've experienced our kids club team members, then you know how awesome they are. Uh, If you don't, I need to tell you how awesome they are. If I was a kid, that is the place that I would want to be on Sunday mornings. And I heard a story this morning, so I didn't write this down, but I heard a story this morning. There was a kid who came last week, and she was like, I'm not real sure about going in there, and I don't want to, and there was tears and all those things. And then about halfway through, she's like, okay, I'll go back there. It's fine. Then when they went to pick her up, she didn't want to leave. So that's how great those people are back there because they love your kids, they love our families, and they make that place awesome. It's great. So if you see somebody who serves in kids, tell them how awesome they are because they hear it from me all the time. They need to hear it from some other people. Just keep telling them how awesome they are. Pump that ego. So, but what we do back there is we take stories that are in the Bible and we dumb it down, for lack of a better way to say it, or kind of bring it to their level because there's a lot going on in the Bible and there are a lot of truths in the Bible that are hard enough for adults to handle and sometimes they still don't get it. And so we have to kind of bring it to their What happened? Was that me? No. We have to bring it to their level uh, and it's, it's really fun to do that. And so I thought what a fun thing to do today would be to bring one of the most famous stories as far as kids go into this room. So we're going to talk about one of the most famous stories in the biblical realm when it comes to kids' stories, quote unquote. And we're going to talk about Jonah and the big fish. Now, if you've been part of churches for a while, you've probably heard this story. If you haven't been a part of a church for a while, you've probably heard this story. If you've never been in churches you've probably heard something about Jonah and the big fish, and you've heard about this guy, and it's kind of a weird story, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, You've most likely heard it. Uh, By the way, it is big fish, according to the Bible, it never says whale, however, there is no Hebrew biblical word for whale, so it could have been a whale, but today we're gonna talk about it as a fish. So if you've ever heard someone say, talk about Jonah and the whale, say, you're wrong, doesn't say that, it says fish. So we're gonna talk about that today. So, 
Uh, I'm going to recap the story. I'm going to tell you what the story kind of is, and we're going to start from there. And here's probably what you've heard. This is traditionally how it goes. So Jonah is an Old Testament prophet. This means he's been chosen by God as someone to deliver God's message to the chosen Israelite people, to the Hebrew people. So if God would have a message, he would say, hey, Jonah, here's my message to the people. Jonah would say, cool, got it, write it down, do whatever he's got to do, he'd go deliver it. One day, Jonah's chilling in his tent, and God comes to him. Hopefully he's not using the facilities, but he's chilling in his tent. God comes to him and says, hey, have a message. I need you to go preach it. So Jonah gets his tool, says, all right, cool, good to go. Let's make this happen. And he says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, ha, never mind. I'm not going to do what you say. I'm going to go somewhere else. And so he's scared because the Ninevites are scary people. So he's scared, he runs away. So he's supposed to go to Nineveh, which is like right here. He says, no, I'm not gonna go to Nineveh. I'm gonna go to Tarshish, which for him would be on the opposite side of the world. So he hops on a boat, gets on a big boat, pays his way on there. They get on the boat and they're starting to head to Tarshish. On the way to Tarshish, Tarshish, it's a fun word to say, Tarshish. If on the way to Tarshish, what happens is a big storm happens. And actually, God actually sent the storm to say, hey, Jonah, I know what you're doing. I can see you because I'm God. You need it about face. And so he sends a storm. Everybody on the ship is freaking out. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And so they're throwing things overboard. Long story short, they figure out it's Jonah because he tells them, hey, this is happening because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. And they're like, dummy. So Jonah tells them, hey, throw me overboard and all your problems will be solved. So they say... Great, toss him overboard, they yeet him right off the ship, and then storm stops, it's done. Which I imagine there's like this weird moment, right, where Jonah's kind of like just, okay, what now, guys? And they're just looking at each other, and then all of a sudden, whoom, big fish comes up and swallows Jonah. But Jonah's not dead, Jonah's alive, and he stays alive in the belly of this great fish for three days, and while he's in there, he feels sorry about what he did, and so he says a prayer of forgiveness, and after the three days are up, the fish vomits Jonah onto dry land. And so Jonah gets up and says, wow, God's pretty strong, pretty powerful, I need to do what he says, I'm gonna rub this uh, stomach acid right off of me, and I'm gonna head to Nineveh. And he goes to Nineveh, he preaches his message, and the Ninevites repent, they turn. And they stop doing all of the terrible things that they were doing, and they come to know who God is, and Jonah, usually cartoons have him walking off kind of like this, like, yeah, I did my job, it's great, good, awesome. And that is the story of Jonah. Except it's not. That's a really nice, succinct, story-condensed version of Jonah, but the problem with what I said, or at least one of the many problems with the things that I said, is that I left out an entire chapter. See, our kids' stories, and if you look it up on Amazon right now, or you Google it, or you can probably find it in a children's Bible if you have it at home, most of them leave out chapter four. Chapter four has some really hard-hitting truths, and when it comes to our kids' stories, we paint Jonah as the hero. Yeah, he makes some mistakes and he does some wrong things, but Jonah's the hero. And most of those books also highlight the fish, right? Most of them, if you look them up, like on the front of actual kids' books, it's gonna have Jonah, some guy, and he's probably like on his knees praying, doing something weird, inside of a fish, or there's a big fish on the cover. And a lot of these stories, they make the fish the thing. In reality, Jonah is the anti-hero, and the fish is not the thing. 
The fish is not the thing. In fact, if you're taking notes today, which hopefully you are, uh, the title of my message today is The Fish Is Not the Thing. So you can write that down. The fish is not the thing. Now, for many people, this story is a deal breaker when it comes to the Bible. Really, though? You're going to tell me that a guy, Jonah, got swallowed by a fish, maybe a whale, but a fish, lived for three days, was conscious enough to say a prayer, and the fish just so happened to be around land to vomit him on, and then he goes and does this. Come on, man. Like, you want me to believe this Bible, but that's in there, and that's true? Like, you're going to make this happen with me? I, I don't think so. I'm not buying that. And it's a problem for many of us. I know people that are Christians that struggle with this story. It's a difficult story to comprehend, but the problem is that we've made the fish the thing. We can't get past the fish, and the fish is not the thing. The fish is only mentioned in two verses of this four-chapter book. The fish is not the thing. And so we're going to uh, dissect some stuff today. We're gonna get into some nitty-gritty stuff, some nerdy Bible stuff, so... Uh, I think it's important to understand this stuff because then you can really understand what the author is trying to do and what this story is trying to tell us. And so to de-censor, to uncensor, to de-filter, whatever you want to call it, we have to look at the Old Testament in the way it was intended to be read. So we have to take this book, this one book, and say, okay, how does this book compare to other Hebrew literature? What is this book trying to say? How was it written? Who would have read this book? And how would the author have intended this book to be written? We have a really great translation. We have an English translation, but the Bible was written in Hebrew. And when you translate it from Hebrew to English, there's a lot of things that get missed. There's some nuance that you don't really see. There's some uh, turn of phrases that in Hebrew, someone would be like, aha, that's funny. But then it gets translated to English and we would just read it as a sentence. And so when we do that, we miss a lot of that contextual stuff. We miss a lot of that background kind of stuff. And so we have to look at it in a different lens. We have to look at it the way that the author would have intended it. Uh, and there are two main views to this book. One view is that when you read this book, you're reading what's called a historical narrative. Essentially what that means is you're reading a story, but this is a story that actually happened. It is a story in history. So if you were to pick up a history textbook, you would read things that actually happened in history. That's one of the main views. The other main view of this book, uh, and this is the one that I'm going to take the approach that I'm gonna to take today is that this book more closely lines up with other Hebrew literature in the form of satirical narrative. This book is satire. It's using a real character, Jonah. Jonah was a real character, a real prophet in the Old Testament. It's using him to tell us something. When you think of satire, think of Saturday Night Live. Right? They have characters, they have people that are impersonating whoever, and it's usually politics. So you have people that impersonate Biden, you have people that impersonate Trump. But what they're doing is they're trying to make a commentary on those characters specifically. And what this book is doing as satirical narrative is making a commentary on Jonah, or at least that's what it looks like. And so Jonah was a real person, uh, and he was an actual prophet, but whether or not this story is true, whether it is historical narrative or satirical narrative, doesn't really matter. Because the point remains 
the same. Now, I think that the point is easier found if it's satire, but again, that's not the point. The author, when he's writing this book, has a specific message that he wants to send and has something that he wants to tell the people that are reading this story or that would be hearing this story. So this book is designed and it's written for a specific purpose to highlight a core issue. As the reader, we have to figure out what that means. And we can even see this in the Old Testament. We can compare it to other books of the Old Testament. Jonah is in the prophets and there are other prophets in the Bible and so we can see, uh, if we take a look at Micah, Micah would be the next book of the Bible. Uh, here's how it starts. It starts Micah 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. So Micah 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. After that, it proceeds to go in to details of what God would have sent Micah. It says, here's all the words, here's what you wanna say to the Hebrew people, so on and so forth. Great. We can look at another one. There's another book in the Old Testament, Joel, Old Testament prophet, Joel 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel, starts off the same, 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Joel. Nice. Word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Same thing. And then after that, we get all of the word that came from God to Joel for the Hebrew people. So when we start reading Jonah, we see that it starts very similarly. And so we're like, okay, great, here we go. Jonah, 1-1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Great, grand, wonderful. We know where this is gonna go. It's gonna give us the word of the Hebrew people and it's gonna tell us what's going on for them. Cool. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Uh, that's not what I was expecting to hear. Okay, uh, this, this, is, this is different. So when you're reading this, and especially as somebody who would be used to hearing stuff from the prophets, you would see that next part of that and say, oh, this book is different. It's, it's not a city that would not be directly to us. He's telling a prophet to go to a different city, a city that would not be filled with Hebrew people. This, okay. Cool, all right, I'm getting it. We're on a journey here. This, is, this book is a story, so we're gonna go on this journey together. And so, this isn't like other books. This book has a different purpose, so I gotta kinda dig deep a little bit. We see it right there in the Bible compared to other biblical texts, that this book is very different. So what I wanna do for the remainder of my time here is I wanna dive deep into chapter four. Again, chapter four is where all of the meat and potatoes of this book kind of come to fruition, and we see the main point is given to us from the author, or rather, it's shown to us. And so chapter four tells us everything that's going on. So to refresh, Jonah, he's preached his message to the Ninevites. Uh, in Hebrew, it's five words. In English, it's eight, which kind of points more to it's a satire thing because that's probably the shortest message. If you guys came here and I said eight words, you'd be probably upset that you got up for that. So, but this message was eight words in English. City has heard the message, they decided to repent, everyone repents. The king hears the message and he even has the cows repent. It's in there, I'm serious. The very end of chapter three says this, Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on the destruction he had threatened. Yes, woohoo, 
This is what we wanted. This is how the stories end. This is great. This is grand. This is wonderful. Jonah, you did it. But Jonah doesn't act that way. Jonah's mad. Jonah's furious that God didn't bring out his promise. Jonah is upset that God did not bring destruction on this city, this, this man of God who eventually did what he was supposed to do is upset. What? what? And, and we get his response. Jonah 4, 1 through 3, says this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. There's two things that are happening here. Remember in the kids' version of the story, Jonah runs away because he's afraid, he's scared, these people are terrifying. But that's not what happens. Jonah tells us why he ran away. He knew that if he did what God asked him to do, that God would be God and this city would be saved. Look at how he describes God. He says, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This way that he describes him is kind of like the Old Testament's John 3.16, right? Like most people, even if you haven't been to a church, you've seen John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. You know that. In the Old Testament, they would know this description of God. It's quoted over a dozen times in the Old Testament. So he knows who God is. He knows the character of God. He knows he's a God who forgives. He doesn't want that. The Ninevites are horrible people. I don't have time to go into all the details and you probably don't wanna hear all the details, but think of Nazi Germany and you think of all the terrible things that they did, horrible things that they did. Times that by about 100, maybe even more. They were in the area of Assyria and these people were ruthless, they were savages. They would decapitate people's heads, stick them on pikes and line up the the roads with things like that, with Jonah's people. Jonah knew all of this, and he didn't want them to experience God's love and compassion and his slowness to anger. That's the first thing that's happening here. The second thing that's happening is Jonah kind of feels like God played a trick on him. Here's what I mean. Back in chapter three, when Jonah gives his very short message, here's what he says, Jonah 3, 4. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, overthrown. Some of you, if you're reading it, your translations may say something like overturned. This word in Hebrew is hapak, hapak. Can you say that, hapak? You gotta put that ha into it, hapak. So yeah, get that spit ready, but with your mask on. So what this word in Hebrew is, is very similar to what we do with English words. So think of it like this. If you're at work one day, you're sitting, at your desk, or you're not. Well, every job doesn't have a desk. If you're at work, someone comes to you, and they say, oh, man, on the way to work, I destroyed my car. You're probably like, oh, no. Who's in the hospital? 
Do you get a new car? Did you have good insurance? Who was your insurance? Are you okay, by the way? That's probably the first question I should ask you. What, but you're here, so I guess you are. What happened? Destroyed is not a good thing. But if you're at work one day, or for this illustration, maybe you're at the gym, and someone comes to you and they say, yeah, boy, oh, just destroyed the record for rack pulls, got a back like an ox, baby, yeah. You're like, yes, destroyed is a good thing. You killed your record. This is awesome. Destroyed, great. Old record, bad. Destroy that thing, kill it with fire, and pick up those weights. That's a good thing. Chapak is the same kind of turn of phrase for the Hebrew people. Can be overturned in a good way, can be overturned in a bad way. So when Jonah is going and he's preaching to the Ninevites, he's saying, your city is gonna be overturned. And he means it in a bad way, and he's hoping, praying, that this city is gonna get destroyed. But when God gave Jonah that message, which version of Hapak do you think God meant? He meant for good. He wanted them to turn from their ways. He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to stop living in sin and doing whatever it is that they're doing that goes against his ways. God wanted this reaction. This is what he was hoping for. So Jonah feels like he's been kind of played for a fool. So God tries to meet Jonah where he's at, tries to have a conversation with him. So he goes to Jonah, verse four, chapter four, verse four says, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry. And then Jonah turns around and just turns around. He doesn't say anything. Stonewalls him, gives God nothing, stews. In fact, he goes to the outskirts of the city, sets up a little camp, puts his little beach chair out with a front row view to see the destruction of this city because he's not buying it. He's not having it. Nope, this city's gonna get destroyed. It's gonna burn and I cannot wait to see the firestorm that comes on this city. And he sits out there and stews in his anger. While he's out there, some more interesting thing happens. The Bible is so great, you should read it every day. There's some, some funny stuff in there. Uh, but it's probably sunny out there. Jonah's probably a bald guy. So it gets really hot. So overnight, God has a plant grow. And that plant provides some shade for Jonah. Jonah's really happy about it. it. It tells us, Jonah, 4, 6, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. This is the first time in the entire book that Jonah has any emotion other than anger, despair, woe is me. Jonah is happy, and he's happy about what? About a plant. That's it. But he's very happy, but not for long because God's got something else in store for him. Moving on to verse seven, four, seven through nine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. 
what in the world is going on here, right? Plants are growing and then dying overnight. Worms are eating the plants. Jonah's happy and then he's upset and then he's mad and he wants to die and he keeps whining like a toddler. The Bible's so strange. Uh, God is using this moment to teach Jonah something that he's missing. And Jonah's missing it by a mile. See, Jonah is so bent out of shape about this plant, and so God tries to meet him again where he's at and says, wait, is, is it okay for you to be mad about this plant? Like, you, you didn't have anything to do with it, didn't help it grow. You have no emotional attachment to this thing at all because it literally just showed up and died overnight. So what, is, it, is it okay for you to be mad about that? And then what does Jonah do? Yeah, of course it is. Super mad about this, made me comfortable. Now it's gone, now I just wanna die. Sounds like a teenage girl. Don't email me. Uh, and then we get God's response to Jonah right after that. This is what he says, Jonah 4, 10 through 11. This is the last section of verses in this book. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And then if you're the reader, and you're reading this story, you think, well, what next? What's Jonah's response? Did the city get destroyed? Did Jonah realize that he's acting kind of immaturely? What was his response to God? What does he say? The book just ends right here. There's nothing else. And that's not the point. The point is to end right where it ends. See, what God is doing here is he's telling Jonah, hey, look, you're mad about this plant. Okay, great. You know what? I'll give that to you. In fact, let's say you can be mad about this plant, and that's fine. I'll accept your anger about this plant. It's totally righteous. Do your thing. Is it not okay for me to have the same concern, the same emotion, the same passion that you have for this plant, this inanimate thing, can I have that same passion and concern for this city full of actual, real, live human beings that are made in my image? And he's trying to show Jonah that, look, these people are your enemies, because in real life they were. They were his enemies, and like I said, they would kill his people. These people were the opposite of the Hebrew people. But God was trying to show Jonah, look, I know that you don't get it, I know you don't see it, I know you don't understand, but these people, they were also made in my image, just like you. And I care about them because I'm God. See, what the author is doing with this book when he's telling you the story, or rather when he's watching you read it, right? He's got a smile on his face when you start off. And you start reading through this book and he's watching you interact with the character of Jonah. And all throughout this book, you're supposed to be like, Jonah, what an idiot. What a dunce. Jonah, would you just listen to God? Would you just do what he says? Jonah, why do you have such a bad attitude about everything? Why don't you just listen to God? He has a better way for you. And as you get to the end of the book, the author is no longer smiling at you. He's not frowning, but his face is kind of deadpan. And he's no longer smiling at you. He's giving you a gut punch 
Because when you get to the end of this book, the intent is that you realize this book is not about Jonah. It's about you. It's about me. It's about everybody that's reading this book. God's not just telling all this and asking Jonah this in a story. It's not about some guy that got swallowed in a fish. God's asking you this question. This story is designed to hold up a mirror to the reader and ask, are you okay with God loving people who aren't like you? Are you okay with God loving your enemies? Are you okay with God loving the people who have harmed you, who are harming you, who will harm you? Are you okay with a God who does that? And if so, are you okay with following a God like that? This book isn't about Jonah. Back then, back there, it's about the reader here and now and what you're supposed to do with that message. Because here's the truth. We've all hurt people. We've all sinned against God. We've sinned against people that we care about. We've hurt people that we care about. We've hurt the people that we love. We have all gone to God, and maybe we haven't said this verbatim, but we've all said, God, your way is not my way. I would rather do my own thing. This is way more comfortable. What you want me to do is way too hard. I don't like it. I don't care about that way. I know that it's the right way, just like Jonah knew what God was going to do. I know it's the right way, but I don't like it, so I'm going to go and do my own thing. We've all been Jonah in this story. And even though we've done all that, even though some of us continue to do it, in fact, all of us continue to do it, Jesus died for every single person. Regardless of that, regardless of how many times you've hurt someone, regardless of how many times someone has hurt you, Jesus died for every single person. He didn't just die for the people that are Christians. That doesn't make any sense. He died for every single person. He died for the people that don't currently follow him. And this story in Jonah is pointing us to that fact, pointing us to the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for everyone, regardless of how messed up we were. In fact, scripture tells us exactly what happened. In Romans 5, 8, says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still sinners, still in sin, Christ died died for us. And then a couple verses later, Romans 5.10, it says this, for if, while we were God's enemies, who were the Ninevites? Jonah's enemies. Jonah's enemies. If we, while we are, were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? See, the story of Jonah leads us up to the very end where we hold a mirror up to ourselves, the mirror of scripture, and we look at ourselves and we say, am I okay with God loving everyone? And if so, what am I supposed to do with that? 
What does that mean for me? Because God loves us, loved us, loves us, regardless of where we are in life, so much so that he sent his one and only son to come here, live a perfect life, die the death that we deserve so that we could live in a relationship with him for all eternity. We could be forgiven for our sins and we can live a life free of guilt and shame because that guilt and that shame were nailed on the cross with him. He did that for you, he did that for me, and all people that exist, not just the people that you like. Because I got news for you. You're no better than the people that you despise. I'm not. Pastor James isn't. My wife's not, she's better than me, but you know. But you're no better than the people that you despise. We're all on the same playing field when it comes to God. And so with that love, are you okay with God loving the people that you don't love? Because if you are, if you say, yes, I'm okay with that, yes, I've accepted the free gift of grace from God through his son, then your job is to show that same love to the people that you currently aren't. Listen, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. But if you get nothing else from today and don't remember any of the stuff in history lesson that I gave you about Jonah, Jesus loves every single person that has existed, does exist, will exist. That's it. And he didn't just say that he loves them. He showed that he loves them through his death and resurrection on the cross. That's the reason that we're here doing what we do. God wants as many people in relationship with him as possible. So God demonstrates his love for his people in two ways. The first way, which I've said a billion times today already, he sent his son to die for you, for you. As he's on the cross, your face came in front of his face. And I believe that. The other way that he demonstrates his love, though, is through his people. Through the people that say, yes, God, I want to follow you. I believe that you sent your son. I believe that he died the death that I should, should have died. I believe in all that. Those people go out and show that very same love. Because if we say we believe that, but it doesn't change us, we don't do anything with it, and we don't act like it actually means something, then it doesn't. We have to do something with that. If we accept God's grace and we turn around and we say, yeah, but those people, then we don't get it. And we need to reevaluate what our definition of grace is because we need that very same grace. And we need to extend that grace to the people who aren't like us. And so if I can uh, try and hit a chord here, we need to give grace to the people who aren't like us, who don't think like us. And so a couple questions for you. Those Democrats, yeah, God loves them. Do you? Those Republicans, yeah, God loves them. Do you? Racists? Yeah, God loves them too. Do you? 
murderers, pedophiles, thieves, terrorists. Can I hit a chord yet? God loves them just as much as he loves you. You're no better than they are. It's our job to show that love. Usually this is a time where I'd be wrapping up my message and I would go into what we call communion and uh, it's pre-COVID where we could do this and pass out trays where you had a little piece of cracker that would represent Jesus' broken body for us uh, and then a little cup that would have some juice and it would represent his blood that was spilled. And we take this and remember that sacrifice that we come here and we celebrate every single week. But God help us if we do those things and then we go on just being like the rest of the world and just show as much hate and anger and point fingers as much as we can. Because we can take all the cracker and the juice that we want, but if it doesn't change us, then what are we doing? The point of Jonah is not to tell you a story about a fish. It's a great story. There's a lot of cool things that you can learn from it. There's a ton of insights. We could do a six-week series on Jonah and go through almost every verse on its own. But the point isn't about a fish. It's about you and what you're willing to do. And are you willing to show that same love that Jesus showed when he died for you, someone who was separated from him? Can you show love to those same people? So this week, and for the rest of your life, what do you need to do to step back and not get swept away in the way of the world where it just is, is hateful and, and sometimes has the power to bring out the worst in us? But how can we step outside of that and say, no, 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 there's something better. There's a better way to live. And I know the person who knows what that's like and I wanna bring you with me on this journey. Regardless of your beliefs, I'm gonna meet you where you're at right now and bring you on this journey with me. What do you need to do? Who do you need to reach out to? Who do you need to reach out to? Who have you lost as a friend or as a family member because of a checkbox that they made on a ballot? Who do you need to reach out to? So this week and forevermore, remember that Jesus died for you, but he also died for that person across the table from you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for everything you've done, for what you're doing, God, and, and just for who you are. God, my hope and my prayer is that we would uh, be a movement of change in this city. That when we turn on the TV or we scroll through Facebook or we look at Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is and we just see all this noise and nonsense and mess that we remember that you are sovereign, that you sent your son to die for all of us and our job is not to be hateful, to get swept away, but to show love, the same love that changed us, changed the trajectory of our lives. Help us have the courage, have the boldness to extend that same love to the people we consider unlovable. God, it's a scary thing to do and it's a hard thing to do, but I know because you have the power to raise the dead that you can help us do that. And for those of us who have said yes to following you, we have the same spirit that raised your son from the dead. 
living inside of us. And if we have that, then loving those we call unlovable, that's a cakewalk. So God, help us to remember that. Give us the courage. Give us the boldness to do that. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you were inspired, encouraged, and challenged by what you heard. And I want to let you know, if you benefit in any way from this ministry or listening to the podcast, I want to invite you and encourage you to become a giver. Not just be a consumer, but a contributor. You know, we're able to do what we do because of the many faithful givers in our church. And I want to invite you to be one of those as well. You can go to our website, we'retherising.com, and see how you can give. But as you contribute to the work that God is doing in and through our church, just know that you are helping to make a difference in the lives of so many people. So thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And my hope is that as you put what you've heard into practice, you'll be changed and transformed forever.